Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 11 once again. As we continue through this prophecy that was given uh, by an angelic messenger to Daniel the prophet. This is Daniel's uh, fourth and final vision that he received. And the third and final concerning Israel directly, which we find taking place spread across chapters 10, 11, and 12. And chapter 11 here is the heart of Daniel's message, or the heart of the message to Daniel that is written down and passed along to us about what he and his people could expect in the days to come. So we're going to read verses 11 through 21 as we take the second part of this uh, prophecy in chapter 11. So Daniel 11, starting in verse 21, and then we will read through verse 35. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them. And he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action and then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south, but this last time it will not turn out the way it did before, for ships of Katim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Again, we find ourselves looking from Daniel's perspective forward in time, from the 530s B.C., forward into the future for centuries to come and really ultimately what we'll find as we go on even past this section looking even beyond our own day here in the year 2023 looking forward into the future 
But this section in particular deals with a time that took place uh, in the early parts of the 2nd century BC, starting in, specifically in the year 175, when a man rose to power by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He is one of the many Seleucid rulers. These rulers came from the northern kingdom uh, among the two that were battling against each other, really for a lot of territory, but uh, the territory that was in the middle between this northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom based in Egypt, the Ptolemaic kingdom. Uh, these two were fighting for now over a hundred years in what is known as the Syrian Wars all across the third century BC and now down into the second century BC. And as a result of this, as we saw last time, Israel found itself in the crossfire. These two empires, these two kingdoms, which had been split out after the death of Alexander the Great and his large Greek empire, uh, after these were split out, they were battling back and forth for control of the region. And these two kingdoms were often at war with one another. Israel found itself taken over back and forth by these these uh, two kingdoms and the battles that they fought against each other. And as we saw last time, God predicted a great number of details about what would happen to Israel. And these things came true historically at a level that demonstrates uh, very powerfully the inspiration of the scriptures. And just how God is able to reveal and to predict the future. And this shows us how we can put our trust in the Bible as something which is from God that no man could have come up with. Well, in addition to uh, last week where we looked at uh, the kingdom of Persia going into the kingdom of Greece and these two kingdoms, north and south, back and forth, here we then come to a specific time in Israel's history where there was great hostility, not just of the two kingdoms toward one another, but hostility by the dominant power at that time toward Israel itself. And Instead of just being caught in the middle of two competing empires, part of Israel's future from Daniel's perspective was that there would be a time that would come, multiple times really, but one time in this time period where they wouldn't just be caught up in the crossfire, but that they would be right in the sights of someone coming after them. That they would be, as it were, in the crosshairs. That they would be in the scope right in front of the one who was coming, not just after the other kingdom, but after Israel. And after worship of the true God. And here we find not only that this took place in a very extreme and hostile way, but we also find what God's people who were faithful did in response in such a circumstance. And so we find that when this finds its historical fulfillment in the time between when Daniel wrote this and when Christ came into the world, uh, we find not only that God accurately predicted what would happen and that God's people would suffer still more, not just during Daniel's time or previous to Daniel's time, but even after it, but we learn an example of how people responded in faithfulness to God when they were attacked for their faith, when they were tried to be uh, persuaded to abandon the proper worship of the one true God and to give themselves to worship of idols or of things that were forbidden. We see a historical account of how these people responded in an exemplary way, in a way that uh, gives us the kind of confidence that we find favor with God even if we suffer at the hands of men when we are faithful to him in the midst of persecution. 
So Israel here is told that they will suffer, and then it serves as an example in the way that they respond for us today and anyone who might go through persecution or suffering for the sake of faithfulness to the one true God. This is an account, then, of Israel being targeted during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. Again, this takes place starting around the year 175 B.C., And it begins with what we will call his rise to power in verses 21 to 24. His rise to power. It says, in his place, the previous place, excuse me, the place of the previous king, a despicable person will arise. And this, of course, describes this man who would come to be known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. The fourth Antiochus from the Seleucid kingdom and, and empire. Uh, You notice here this man's character. Verse 21, he will seize the kingdom by intrigue. Verse 23, he practices deception. Verse 24, he has schemes. He will devise schemes against strongholds. um, And schemes will be devised against the king of the south. In verse 27... Uh, He, along with the other king of the south that he is fighting against at the time, as we'll see, turns out to be his nephew, uh, is his heart is intent on evil. And he, again, along with his counterpart, will speak lies. This is an evil, despicable man. And yet he is a very powerful man. He comes to rule and he comes to do so in accordance with divine prophecy. Now, we have already seen a prediction of this that is described in Daniel chapter 8. And I just want to go back there for a moment uh, to read about him. If you would flip over there, flip back to Daniel chapter 8. Verse 8, then the male goat, this is representing Alexander, the, uh, or the kingdom of Greece, magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven, representing the breakup of the empire of Alexander the Great. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts of some of the stars to fall to the earth and trampled them down, and even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. We see in verse 23 that uh, similar that the, the same thing is referred to in the latter period of their rule when the transgressors have run their course. A king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. And he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they're at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. And so in chapter 8, we have described some of his actions, but a whole, whole lot about his character, about what he intends to do. 
and about the nature of this one. And of course, this is what this man, this evil king, turns out to be. And so sure enough, the reign of Antiochus IV takes place toward the end of Greek dominance over the territory of Israel. In the end of what was the third of four kingdoms that had been predicted in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7. Before Rome took over and arose as that fourth and final human kingdom. Um, Antiochus came to power in the fall of 175 BC. He had been a hostage to this point for some 14 years in Rome. Rome had battled against the Seleucid uh, kingdom. And Rome uh, defeated them in that war. And he was taken hostage as part of the treaty that was uh, brought about to end that conflict. But in 175, he was exchanged in exchange for the proper heir to the throne, uh, his nephew, Demetrius I. And so it says in, here in Daniel eleven twenty one that a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. There is no one really necessarily looking out for him. This is not expected. This is not even necessarily needed. It's not as if the circumstances were ripe for this himself. It's just that he arises to power. He has this drive. He raises an army and he goes and he takes power himself after he has been released. Um, he it then says in verse 22... The overflowing forces will be flooded away from before him and shattered. And also the prince of the covenant. Now again, the prince does not necessarily refer in the book of Daniel to someone who has the lineage of uh, coming from a king. But it refers to a ruler or a commander of some kind. Now historically what this probably refers to is the removal of Onias III. He had been the Jewish high priest. And uh, after Antiochus came to reign, he was replaced by multiple high priests. Uh, the first one would be Jason, and then uh, later by his replacement, Menelaus. Uh, and Onias was in favor of the kingdom of the south. He was sort of partial to them toward the, uh, the Ptolemies based in Egypt. Jason, his replacement, was in favor of the northern kingdom of the Seleucids. And he was on the side of Hellenization in Israel, which would be the, uh, the influence of Greek culture, the promotion of Greek culture upon them. So Onias is replaced by Jason, and then Jason sends Menelaus to, uh, to Antiochus to pay Jason's yearly tribute, which is kind of how he got the gig in the first place. And while he's there, he undercuts him, offers Morse to make himself the high priest, and he got the job. He should not have been the priest. He should not have been the high priest. He wasn't from the line of Zadok. Um, and he was an evil man who eventually helped Antiochus to go into the temple in violation of the law of the Lord. But this uh, replacement, this going before him, uh, the prince of the covenant likely has this in mind. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception. He will go up and gain power with a small force of people. So he is going and he takes power. He ascends in this way. He takes it to himself. He doesn't just go according to the line that belonged to him. But he takes over and he does it by force. He also, it says, uh, he has some significant accomplishments. Verse 24, in a time of tranquility he will enter the richest parts of the realm. And he will accomplish what his fathers never did. 
nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. And so he has great success, but it is success that happens for a limited time. He accomplishes what his fathers never did, but this happens only for a time. We then This leads us to consider, in starting in verse 25, uh, his battles. And so he goes to war. We find he has two major campaigns against the south. And the first of these is described in verses 25 through 28. His first battle against Egypt. His first battle against Egypt, which would have taken place in the year 169 B.C. So we find his attack against the south. Verse 25, he will stir up strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. This young king of the south was actually one of his nephews, Ptolemy VI. He was still only about 17 years old by this point. He had been taken under the leadership when he was younger of a couple of guardians. And these guardians did two main things uh, in these international relations. They, uh, one of them was to rally the people to take over the contested territory that they had all been fighting over for these last hundred plus years. And then the other was that these guardians installed a couple of his siblings as co-rulers. Uh, so here he is, and he is being attacked. So then there is a counterattack by the south. There's an attack against the south, and then a counterattack by the south. Uh, the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war. But what does it say? He will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Likely referring to the guardians who got him involved in this war. And uh, there are people who were connected with him who undermine him in some way. Um, he is trying to fend off the battle. Antiochus came from the north and worked his way stage by stage through Judea, where Jerusalem is, all the way up through to the border of Egypt and into Egypt. And then he was trying to go and to take the capital city of Alexandria. Alexandria, of course, was founded by and named after none other than, who do you think? Alexander the Great, during his, uh, during his capture of so much territory, some 150 years before this, 160 years before this. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it is on the northern border of Egypt. And at this time, Alexandria was quite possibly the largest city, the most populated city in the entire world, or at least very close during the 3rd century BC and into the 2nd century. So this was no minor undertaking. And uh, he has every reason to go up and to try to conquer this. But he doesn't make it all the way there, as we will see. Nonetheless, he is pushing toward the capital. Toward, he's pushing toward Alexandria. Um, in the process of this, both of these kings have a meeting arranged before he gets all the way there. And, of course, they are related. One is the nephew. The king of the south is the nephew of the other. Um, they try to kind of work things out, but something happens. And they both, as they meet together practice deception. Verse 27 tells us of their mutual deception. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, but they will speak lies to each other, and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. So the battle between the two of them was not over. Alexander, uh, excuse me, Antiochus unsuccessfully attacked the city of Alexandria, and he returned back to the north in the fall of the year 169. And he would return the following year, but not before some other things take place. 
Verse 28, his return from battle. He will return to his land with much plunder. Even though he didn't take the city of Alexandria, he had quite a bit to bring back. But notice here, his heart will be set against the holy covenant. His heart will be set against the holy covenant. Here, he takes issue with God's rules and laws and religious system and the setup of formal worship that were established in Jerusalem, which he had uh, conquest over, which he had rule over. All that was involved in the worship of the one true God, Antiochus, was hostile toward. His heart is set against the Holy Covenant. This is the first we get of his hostility specifically against God's religion, against God's prescriptions. To this point, you could simply say this seems like just geographic, geopolitical ambition. But there is more here. Every persecution that takes place of um, of Christians of or of uh, God's people is uh, it's motivated by something and sometimes it's just by people having uh, ambition for their own ends and Christians get in the way or uh, believers get in the way of what they want and so they're, they're sort of just the the uh, the byproduct of their ambition is persecution but here it seems that there is actually direct hostility toward God's people toward God's ways. And sometimes it is like that. And in the most extreme cases, it is just that, that people don't just love themselves and hate anything that gets in the way, but they actually despise God himself and they despise God's ways and they despise God's word and his rules and his principles and everything about him and the worship of him. And this is what this is painting as a picture of this man in particular. Israel may have suffered under other people, but there are those like Nebuchadnezzar who didn't have any particular hostility against Israel's gods in one sense, although he did oppose him and defy him and uh, continued to do so to a large degree even after he knew much about him. But this, one, this man, this king, has it out for God. His heart is set against the holy covenant. And so he will take action and then return to his own land. Some of this is described... In the apocryphal books of uh, First and Second Maccabees, gives some accounts of these. First uh, Maccabees one, we read the following account: After subduing Egypt, Antiochus returned in the one hundred and forty third year. He went up against Israel and came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar, the lampstand for the light, and all its utensils. He took also the table for the bread of the presence, the cups for drink offerings, the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, the gold decoration on the front of the temple. He stripped it all off. And he took the silver and the gold, the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Taking them all, he went into his own land. He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. So he begins to do this kind of thing here before he goes back into his own land. And this is only setting the stage for what would then come later on even worse. And this leads us to, uh, to understand his second battle against Egypt. Remember, the appointed time was still to come, verse 27. The end is still to come at the appointed time. Well, now verse 29, at the appointed time. So we read now his second battle against Egypt uh, and his intentions of conquest. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But 
This time it will not turn out the way it did before. The outcome of his invasion is detailed here in verse 29 and verse 30. How did it turn out before? Well, not as successful as he would have liked. He would have preferred to capture the entire territory, including the city of Alexandria. Um, But this time, it was not even as successful as it was previously. He returns, but verse 30 tells us ships of Katim will come against him. Now, what is this source? Where are these ships from? Um, This seems to be most likely a general term for the coastlands of the Mediterranean Sea which of course was on the border of the land of Israel as well as Egypt and many other uh, lands. In this case, the uh, most likely scenario is the Roman activity that was now going on there. Rome, though not having taken over all of this area and not having taken over the territory of Israel, was quite influential, was growing more powerful, had already defeated the forces of, uh, of Antiochus's kingdom before he was ruling, and they were, uh, they, were, they were very powerful at this time. And these ships would have come from them. Rome hears about Antiochus trying to take Alexandria, and they are not having it. And so they send a fleet. They send a commission to, uh, not a co- commission, they send a message to Antiochus, and they give him an ultimatum. And they say, you get out of here. Go back to where you came from. Antiochus tries to buy some time and is given no option to do that as well and is forced to decide on the spot. He relents and he goes back home. And as a result, we find his response in verse 30, therefore he will be disheartened. His response to his failure is that he is disheartened, but his failure to succeed in battle drives another action. And we understand what this is like when you don't get something that you want, especially when your heart is not guarded by divine truth. You can look for an outlet for your disappointment and your rage and your anger in some other direction. And this is exactly what he does. It says that he will return, verse 30, and become enraged at the holy covenant and take action. And take action. According to the book of 2 Maccabees, there was a rumor back home that Antiochus was dead. And so Jason, uh, the former high priest, assaulted the city. And uh, Antiochus heard about this and took it to mean, uh, according to Maccabees, that Judea was in revolt. He's already not happy about being stopped in Egypt. You can imagine what happens when he hears about this. And so then we find this action which now has Israel right in his sights his turn against the Jews verses 30 through 32 his turn against the Jews it says he will return and become enraged at the holy covenant and so he will come back so he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant now the people that are going to be on his good side are the people who are willing to abandon what God has said And the people that aren't willing to abandon what God has said and aren't willing to give up the practice of temple worship and sacrifices, these people are going to be on his bad side. So he comes back and he he puts a dividing line between the two and says, if you want to be on my side and live and prosper, then you give up what you're doing in this worship according to what Moses had laid down in the Bible. People would be tempted then 
to do what he wants rather than to do what God wants. They're going to value their life as more valuable than faithfulness to God. They're going to be people who are tempted to be on the right side of the king by not doing what he forbids and by doing what he requires, even if it goes against God's word. And this is exactly what he comes and does. He, he takes action against God. Verse 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. I want to read a recap account of what happened later, of, uh, of the account, historically speaking, from after the fact. This is recorded in 2 Maccabees 5. When news of what had happened reached the king, he took it to mean that Judea was in revolt. So raging inwardly, he left Egypt and took the city by storm. He commanded his soldiers to cut down relentlessly everyone they met and to kill those who went into their houses. Then there was a massacre of young and old, destruction of boys, women, and children, the slaughter of young girls and infants. Within the total of three days, 80,000 were destroyed, 40,000 in hand-to-hand fighting, as many were sold into slavery as were killed. Not content with this, Antiochus dared to enter the most holy temple in all the world, guided by Menelaus, who had become a traitor both to the Jews and to his country. He took the holy vessels with his polluted hands and swept away with profane hands the votive offerings that other kings had made to enhance the glory and honor of the place. He took away 1,800 talents precious metals from the temple. He left governors to oppress the people. He sent a large army to kill all kinds of people and sell them into slavery. He sanctioned false religion, immorality, and evil offerings. He, uh, he chose to forbid the Jews from following the laws of God. He forced them to participate in Gentile false worship of idols, and he killed people who tried to defy him. It says he set up the abomination of desolation. In his case, it's Difficult to know exactly historically what this referred to, but it seems likely that it was an altar that he had set up himself on top of the altar of burnt offering, uh, an alternative to God's system of worship that he had prescribed. It could possibly as well have been an unlawful offering, such as offering swine. Here, he attacks them, but not only does he attack them, but he also persuades people to join his cause This is his deception toward godlessness. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness, verse 32, those who act wickedly toward the covenant. He, again, is deceptive all over. This is just the way that he operates. He convinces people to follow after him. But he isn't the only party involved. And we learn here at the last few verses of this chapter that some people in the face of all of this stood up. Some people said, yes, there is persecution against us. Yes, it is powerful. Yes, it is harmful. And this man is trying by government order, by sinful rage against God, to try to force us to violate what the Bible says. And they weren't having it. This came to be known historically as the Maccabean Revolt. The Maccabean Revolt revolt. And there are a number of things that describe the people who were involved in this. They stand up to Antiochus and they start to fight back. Um, It mentions here that there are people who know their God, verse 32. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. Uh, This speaks generally of the fact that people were doing this for the right reasons. 
that there are people who are standing up against us and saying, no, we are going to fight back. We're going to worship God. We're, going, we're not going to obey these commands to violate the law. We are going to try to worship him the way that we're supposed to. And these people knew God. They are commended by this phrase as believers. Now, certainly, as we'll see, there are those who could join in the fight as hypocrites. There are those who... Uh, who would turn out to be deceived, perhaps. But he's just saying in general, the reason they do this is because they actually have these convictions because they trust and they know God. They're concerned about the true worship of him. And this is not just a historical record from men that they knew their God, speaking after the fact. This is actually God predicting through this angelic messenger to Daniel that there would be people who are believers who actually take this action. So it tells us about their knowledge of God. It tells us about their steadfast action. Their steadfast action. They will display strength and take action. What started the revolt was that when uh, they had been commanded, there was a group of them who refused to, uh, to worship the way that they had been told. Mattathias uh, was leading this. He refused to follow the king's instruction to violate the law of God. And when uh, another Jew came to the altar in plain sight of them to violate the law of Moses in this way, he not only killed that Jew, but then also did so to the king's officer who was requiring them to sacrifice. And then he tore the altar down. And this started the revolt. He died in 166, but his son, Judas Maccabeus, became the commander of the army. They fought a series of battles. They took action, and over time they succeeded in retaking what belonged to God. They recovered the temple, and they rebuilt, and they purified it. During this time, it says those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. There are those who know the truth. They understand the law of God. They understand the truth of God. And they would have an influence upon others, not just by conquering physical things, but by spiritual influence, by the truth of God becoming what other people are persuaded of. And they have this influence upon other people. Those who have insight, it says, will give understanding to the many. We find in verse 33 as well, they're suffering for righteousness. They're suffering for righteousness. They'll give understanding to, to the many, but yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. By many days. Um, once again, First Maccabees describes the awful things that, that they did to them, uh, including... Something like this, the books of the law they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. Um, it speaks to the fact that there were those who chose to die, quote, chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. There are a number of specific martyrs listed in the account of 2 Maccabees. Eventually, the revolt led by Judas Maccabeus succeeds against the northern forces commanded by Nicanor. Soon after this, Antiochus comes to his end and dies. And the temple is restored and purified. There were along the way people who, however, were not true believers Verse 34, when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Just because someone seems to be on the side of a divine cause doesn't mean 
that they actually are. There would be all kinds of reasons why somebody might join with them. All kinds of motivations to join, excited for a fight, uh, wanting to prove themselves righteous in the sight of other people. Not so much concerned with the worship of God, but looking to look out for their own interests in this world, in this life, and in their standing. There are people who join with these things insincerely, and this is the case in any true religious movement, that people can join hypocritically. People can think that they're part of the cause, but they don't self-examine, or they do know, and they deceive themselves and other people almost intentionally. In the midst of persecution, even, people are willing to suffer alongside them and to join the cause. We don't know what motivates them always, but we do know that it's possible. Beware that this is not you. How much more in a time of peace, in a time of the absence of persecution, is it easy for people to pretend to be part of God's people? These are good people. This is who I want to be associated with. This is the reputation that I want to have. I want to be a good Christian, a good Christian man, a good Christian woman, a moral, upright citizen. And you come to church and you say the words and you affirm the same moral values and you say, yes, we need Jesus to save us. But is there a heart of faith? Is there a heart of humility that trusts, that cries out like David as we read this morning that against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged? Is there an attitude that says, I deserve what you give me, God? Not that I am commending myself to you by doing religious worship and coming and offering sacrifices, so to speak. But one that says, I must confess that I'm a sinner before God because I need the gospel of Christ. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't join into a religious cause, no matter how good the cause is, out of hypocrisy. No matter what you're trying to accomplish, none of it will mean anything in the end unless you actually are following in sincerity of heart. Well, these were willing to suffer, and those who were sincere as well, some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. This is their meaningful martyrdom. Their meaningful martyrdom. Lessons here, first of all, just that because you are uh, operating on behalf of a righteous cause, This does not guarantee your temporal success at all. It doesn't mean that you're going to succeed. And if you suffer, and if you fail, and if your goal doesn't work, especially in the short term, this doesn't mean that you weren't doing what is right. It doesn't mean that God is not looking upon you with favor. It doesn't mean that you're not pleasing to him. Many times the reasons why hardships come in our life have nothing to do with how righteous we are. And if anything, they are the result of us actually trying to follow God faithfully. We certainly can bring about hardships in our own lives, but this is not what's going on here. Some of those who have insight are the ones, he says, will fall. And this is done in order to refine and purge and make them pure until the end time. They do suffer. They do suffer as martyrs, but it's not for nothing. It's not a waste of life. It's not a wasted effort. It's not a lost cause. God is using it. And this happens in his intention in order to prepare this nation that he is dealing with here, this nation of Israel, for the end time. This is what he's doing. He's telling these things to Daniel, and he says, look, Daniel, this is going to be hard. Hard times are going to come, but they're not accidents. 
This is not unintentional. It's not without meaning. It's not without purpose. But all of these things are intentional for what I am doing through history for my people until the time of the end when the kingdom of God comes and everything is made right. So their martyrdom is there, but it is meaningful. Not just because they're willing to suffer or they died for a noble cause, as so many martyrs throughout history have done. But because there is an eternal benefit coming from this. Because there is something bigger than just what people in this world see. Believers who are martyred or who suffer for the sake of God and his word and his purposes and his causes have infinitely more to do so for than anyone else who would suffer no matter how good their earthly cause but this also tells us that that is the time we have to look forward to that is the time that we need to put our hope in if we're going to be willing to stand up and to suffer who would just suffer for the sake of suffering who would be willing to be uh, to fall and to, to be purged if nothing is coming about from that. If that's the case, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we've hoped in Christ, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, if there's no coming kingdom of God, what are you doing suffering for his sake? There's no point. He says, do you think, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that we fought with wild beasts at Ephesus? Are we hungering and thirsting every day just for this life? Why would we be doing that? It doesn't make any sense. These people are fighting for something bigger than them and not just fighting for some of the noble causes which are indeed noble in this world, but they are fighting for an eternal kingdom. And they don't bring in the kingdom by their fighting, but they're fighting with that in view because they are those who want to be worthy of that kingdom. And so this is the attitude that we should adopt. Looking forward to the future, being willing to suffer for the sake of faithfulness, if that's what it requires. And listen, we need to look at these and say, are we willing when people controvert the worship and the truth of God to stand up and take action? Are we willing when, when people are drawn astray to say, no, that's not true? Are we willing when people are trying to be pulled away from the gospel to go to them and say, what does God say? Even if this means that we suffer, even if it means it's uncomfortable, we need to be willing to follow the example of faithfulness that's described here, knowing that one day God will make all things right. Even then when Israel is suffering for the sake of their faithfulness, they can have this hope and they can have this confidence because graciously is revealed, God graciously has revealed what would happen to them in the future. And we can have the same thing. We anticipate when the Lord Jesus comes, when he brings his kingdom, he brings the true rewards, and he makes everything right. And we should put our hope in that day and be willing to be uncompromising, willing to go through anything for his sake, with the confidence that he is doing good and that he will one day bring ultimate good to us through his son, Jesus Christ, when he brings his kingdom. Let's pray together and ask him for grace to carry these things out. God, we thank you that you have not only predicted and shown yourself faithful in the events of history, but that you're sovereign over them, and that you are able to, uh, to tell us that these things are not permanent. These situations of difficulty are not permanent. God, we thank you that though we do have times of suffering and uh, things that we, that we lose 
for, things that we would rather not have that we do have for the sake of the gospel. We, we thank you that we have this hope. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be strong. Help us to take action and to be ready for the fight. May you use these things to bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.